Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Lord, thank you so much for this beautiful day that you've given to us and for your word. Lord, I pray that as we prepare to hear from you, Lord, that you've already prepared our hearts. Lord, that we would be the fertile soil ready to receive the seed of your word this morning. Lord, please use this time and use me this morning to convey whatever the message is that you would have each one of us here today. We thank you, Jesus, and in your name we pray, amen. So we've been kind of tracking along with Jesus and his disciples up to this point. They've, they're walking closer and closer to Jerusalem. He's coming, and you know that Jesus knows that this is the last time that he's going to make this walk, this journey, this trek to Jerusalem, because what he's already shared with us and with his disciples already a few times is that this time when he gets there, he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be accused and arrested. He's going to be tried. He's going to be beaten, scourged, spit on, mocked, and then ultimately crucified. But at the end of it, he is going to, on the third day, rise again, which Jesus always makes sure to tell us that part. Every time he talks about his own death, he also talks about his own rising from the dead or his own resurrection, because Jesus says to all of us that death is not the end that there is something after that. And for those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ, the after that is uh, eternity in heaven. Amen? So he's going now on his way. It says that there is a draw near. This is chapter 21, verse 1. It says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem and they came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. Hold on, let me just break that down just for a second. Um, there are uh, three little villages outside of Jerusalem, Bethany, which he's going to mention, Bethpage here, and then there's this other little one called Nob. Um, and so it seems that they're drawing near to one of these. He's drawing near to Bethany, uh, excuse me, uh, Bethpage. He's going to send his disciples into one of these three small towns on a, on a mission, which we're going to look at in a minute. Now, you have to understand that these, normally these little towns were little during the regular season. They only had a, a very small population, but at this time, it's a feast day. And it's not just a feast day, it's the Passover feast, which means that there are just thousands and thousands of people who don't live here streaming into this area. So these little towns go from being this big to being this big overnight because of the number of people who are coming in. Not everybody can stay in Jerusalem. I mean, the, the population in Jerusalem jumps to two and a half million people for this one feast. And so these little towns also swell up with a lot of people. And Jesus is going to send his disciples into one of these towns on a mission. He's going to say, you're going to go into town and you're going to find a donkey and a colt tied up. I want you to bring them to me. Look at what he says there. Go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. So he gives them instructions. He says, you're going to go into this town, whichever one of the three it is, we don't know for sure. And you're going to find tied up a donkey and its colt along with it. And I want you to untie them and bring them to me. And you know what? If, if I were one of those disciples, I'd be, I'd be asking myself right in that moment, well, like, how will I know which donkey to bring to you? Because there's probably going to be more than one. There's a lot of people. There's probably going to be more than one donkey tied up. How will I know which one? 
And even if I am able to figure out which donkey it is that I'm supposed to untie, what am I just supposed to go up and untie somebody's donkey and just stroll away with it? I mean, is that really going to work? But this is what we see. Jesus says, this is how it's going to be. This is what you're going to do. And this is what you're going to say. And it'll all work out. And we're going to see that that's what they did. They heard what Jesus said. Even though they may have had doubts on how it was going to work, they went and they did it. And guess what? It worked. It was exactly as they said. I mean, so many times, you know, the, there are times I think when Jesus, we get the idea in our head that Jesus is saying, um, I want you to go here or go there or do this or say that or talk to this person. And we think, well, how, I mean, how? Am I, how's that going to work? How am I going to do that? What am I even going to say to that person? And this is what I would say to you. If he says go, go. And if he says say this, say that. And see if it doesn't work out just like he has promised. We just sang a song. It said that Jesus, you are the promise keeper. He said it, it will happen. He says it here, this is what will happen. You're going to go to untie these donkeys and there's going to somebody who's going to come up and say, excuse me, but why are you taking my donkeys? And this is what you say, the Lord needs them. So he says to them, loose them and bring them to me. You know what's interesting? It says them, right? You're going to find a cult, a donkey and a cult tied up. Loose them and bring them to me. You don't usually see in any of the paintings of the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday of Jesus like riding two donkeys. Somehow he's got one leg over this one and one leg over that one, right? Or even two donkeys at all. In the picture, somehow the artists have all missed that in this scripture that there were two donkeys or a mother and a baby or an offspring. Um, but he says, bring them both to me. And I think that's very interesting that it's two donkeys. And it's interesting enough that I wrote a note on it and can't seem to find it. <laughs> well, first of all, it'll show up here somewhere. I'm not worried. Let me, let me just see a second. It's interesting to me because it's like Jesus' uh, it's, it's prophecy, okay? In Zechariah, Jesus comes in, he says, I need them. Not because I can't walk the mile and a half left from Bethany to Jerusalem, but I need them. That was the message that he said. Say to the Lord, I need them, or the Lord needs them. Now the answer we see in the other Gospels is the guy comes up and says, hey, why are you taking my donkeys? Uh, and the, the disciples there are like, the Lord needs them? I wonder if they asked it like that, like with that question. Like if they weren't sure if it was going to work or not, but we're going to do it anyway. Like the Lord needs them? And he was like, oh, okay. And he gave them, I'm sure they're walking away going, I can't believe this guy just gave us our tongue. It's just, we, it actually says, Jesus says, it is so that it is fulfilled. And he quotes to them Zechariah 9.9, which is prophecy. Did he need to ride the donkeys because he couldn't make that one and a half mile journey? He just walked all over creation and back. For three years, he's been walking every place. Could he make that last mile and a half? Pretty sure. So did he need the donkey? Well, yes. He still needed the donkey. Why? Because he had to fulfill prophecy. That's what Jesus did. 
He fulfilled prophecy, and not just prophecy, but messianic prophecy. The prophecies about the one who was going to come and do what the Bible had said the Messiah would do, to come and deliver us from our sins. And so, yes, he needed the donkey. So the Lord has need of it was a 100% true statement. He did need the donkey, not because he was weak, but because he was walking in full obedience to the Father's will. And so he needed the donkey. In Zechariah 9.9, it says that, well, you can read it for yourself. It says right there in verse 5, Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, a foal of a donkey. So Jesus comes in riding on a donkey, and we see in other prophecies that had never been ridden before. That's why we know it was the, the offspring of the mother, but here we have two. It's very interesting. I got it. I got it. See, it came back to me. The two donkeys. It's also a very cool picture here. All right. He's riding in on both donkeys, or essentially he's riding the colt with the mother right along beside. And it's a very neat image of two people groups. The donkey or the mother, the one donkey who had been burdened before, carried a burden before, and the young one who had never been ridden, never been burdened, wild and untamed. So you've got the one that was burdened and the one that was wild and untamed is a really clear picture of the nation of Israel who had borne the burden of the law and the other people group who would be included now would be the wild, untamed Gentiles who had never been burdened by the law. Jesus comes in and he says, and I am here for both groups. That's why both are included. Oh, aren't you glad I remembered that note? Okay. Also, what's interesting to me is that Jesus, the prophecy says that the king is going to be riding in on a donkey, not a war horse, which is what maybe we would think like, well, if I'm victorious and I'm coming in and I'm the king and I'm coming in to, to reestablish rule, I'm coming in on a big white stallion like the, the Lone Ranger's horse, you know, and proud and we're trotting along and it's with its mane all braided and fancy. No. See, Jesus comes in on a donkey. The prophecy was about the king coming in on a donkey. Now, here's the thing, right? War horses were reserved for those who came in victory. They had vanquished a foe. They had conquered a people. And so they were riding in to show that they had, they had vanquished or squashed this people group. But donkeys were reserved for royalty, right? And we see other places where, you know, when, Sol when David made Solomon his son, king. They put him on David's donkey and rode him in. And so everybody would recognize the fact that this is the king. The king comes in on a donkey, not a war horse. And so Jesus is prophesied as the Messiah would come in riding on a donkey, not on a war horse because he hadn't vanquished a people. In fact, he had been given a people by his father as king, which is interesting also because in the Old Testament, how did you become king? Well, you became king because your father was king or because God appointed you to be king to take the place of a bad king that was in place before you. Both of those are true of Jesus. God anointed him to be king and he handed him the kingdom. And so Jesus coming in on a donkey fulfills not only prophecy, but also the expectation that anybody would have had of an Old Testament king coming in and taking the rightful place. Now, there's another prophecy that's very important. It's not in here, but it's really cool to talk about that he fulfills on Palm Sunday. And there was a man um, named Sir Robert Anderson, who in the late 1800s was the 
um, Commissioner of Crime for the City of London with Scotland Yard. And he was studying Daniel chapter 9 specifically, the prophecy about the, the arrival of the Messiah. And he saw that King Artaxerxes made a declaration that the city of Jerusalem should be rebuilt, which by the way was a total God thing because why would he do that? Why would a, a foreign king make the decision that the city of Jerusalem should be rebuilt other than God saying, this is what I'm going to do. And if God says it, it will happen. He gives the command, Sir Robert Anderson, using um, Daniel's prophecy, figured out that it was from the time that the command was given to the time that the Messiah would ride into Jerusalem would be 483 years or 173,880 days. Okay? From the day that King Artaxerxes gave the command to rebuild Jerusalem, 173,880 days was this day, Palm Sunday, when Jesus rode in. That very day. So not only did he fulfill prophecy about how he would ride in and how he would arrive, but also fulfilled prophecy on the day that he would ride in. That's amazing. And don't think that they didn't know this because of the way they react to his entry. They see him on a donkey. They see him coming in on a specific day. They actually are going to worship him as their deliverer. It's going to say it right here. So they saw that. But he, what they didn't see was him coming in in a way and establishing a kingdom that was that not of this earth, which isn't what they were looking for. That's where they were struggling a little bit. So... It says, so the disciples, verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt and laid their clothes on him, and they set him on it. And so, so the disciples are told, go in, get this donkey, say this thing if anyone says anything to you, and then bring it to me. And that's exactly what they did. So they heard him, they did it, it went as he said, and they were able to bring back the donkey. That's really amazing, and that's a challenge to us. I'm going to tell you, when we hear the voice of the Lord, we have to say, all right, I don't quite get how it's going to work, but I'm going to do it. I don't know why you're telling me necessarily to do it this way, but I'm going to trust in what you say. And here's another thing that just kind of popped into my head the other day. He says, the only message he gives them, when you face opposition, get them to the Lord. Say, the Lord needs it. The Lord. There's an apologist that I really love to listen to. He's still alive, actually. His name is... Um, John Montgomery Ward. And uh, he says this, when you're talking to someone uh, about your faith or when you're witnessing, get to Jesus as quick as you can. Get to Jesus as quick as you can. All he told them was, the Lord needs him. It's a very simple message. When you're sharing your faith, don't, you know, we, we try and do this like maneuvering around, like, oh, if I can make this message sound like something secular and then like, like Jesus at the end, you know, I, Trust, try getting right to Jesus as quick as you can. That's where the power is, right? We don't convince people. Jesus saves people. So then it says that, uh, verse 8, a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road and cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. This now we're seeing a very great multitude. See, we've seen multitudes, and we've even seen great multitudes, but now we have very great multitudes. Do you know how many people are in a very great multitude? Okay. More, more than a great multitude. 
a lot. We're talking about a lot of people. Now, some of them, I'm sure, are there because they're coming in for the Passover, and it's the same trail that everybody would be on. Um, but a lot of people are following Jesus at this point because he's been walking around the area, doing a lot of great things, saying some things that they've never heard before. And we see that there are just a lot of people who are interested in following Jesus. Now, what we know is a lot of them think that he's going to come in and he's going to overturn Rome and that they're going to be reestablished as their own ruling power. And so that's why a lot of people are following him, as well as the things that he's done for them and the things that he has said to them. And so he's got a great multitude that are following him. So we see that this is this triumphal entry or Palm Sunday, as it's called. And it says that as they're going in, they're throwing their, their cloaks on the ground and they're waving palm branches, or this says branches, but in Mark's gospel, it identifies it as palm branches. Now, this is pretty specific. And this is what leads me to believe that they had some understanding of the Old Testament when they see Jesus come riding in, some understanding of the fulfillment of who he was and what he was doing because of the cloaks and the palm branches. Now, the palm branches is kind of a... Um, connected to about 160 years before this, there was a Syrian army commander named Antiochus who wanted to come in and was told to squash Israel. And so he came in and just started to crush them and everybody. He cut out any kind of temple worship. He cut out all of their ceremonies. Um, he didn't allow them to do anything that they were doing before. And then he go with, went into the temple and he sacrificed a pig on the altar and then forced the temple priest to consume the pig meat, which would have been like a horrible thing. But he was desecrating the temple on purpose. Now this caused a huge uproar among the Israelites. And one family in particular, the Maccabees, raised up to kind of fight back against Antiochus and his army. And essentially, one of their, one of their leaders, Judas Maccabees, led several revolts against the Syrian army and was eventually able to crush them and drive them out of Jerusalem and then rode in to Jerusalem and went in and cleansed the temple and showed that they had defeated the foreign oppression. This is why they are cutting down palm branches, because they're remembering that that is what happened, that there was a, a deliverance from foreign oppression and the cleansing of a temple, their temple. And so they cut down these branches and waving them in terms of like liberation. It's a sign of their liberation from foreign oppression. And so they're waving these palm branches and throwing them down on the road in connection to what they remember from the Maccabee revolt and the cleansing and the defeat of the foreign army. Now, also, they're taking off their cloaks and they're throwing them on the road so that his donkeys can ride over top of them. Now, why would they do that? Well, we've always just said, well, that's because that's what they did for a king. But there's a specific example in the Bible of when they did that, which is, again, what I believe they're remembering and connecting to Jesus. In 2 Kings chapter 9, Elisha sends a messenger to Jehu, who was the commander of the Israelite army. At the time, there was a horrible king named Ahab in charge, and he was oppressing the people, and he, was, he and his wife Jezebel, um, who was really into witchcraft, um, were, were uh, an oppressive force to the people. And so Elijah is told by God to send a prophet to anoint Jehu as king in place of Ahab. And so he goes, and essentially that's what he does. He anoints Jehu as the king. And when Jehu's army hears about this, they take off their coats and they throw them on the ground as he rides out the newly anointed king in place of Ahab, who was going to, number one, go in and it says to... Uh, 
avenge the blood of the Lord's prophets who Ahab and Jezebel had killed and to cleanse and free the people from uh, this oppressive form of government. And so again, they're, they're seeing Jesus come in who they believe to be the Messiah based on all the things that they've seen and heard and the prophecies being fulfilled. And they believe he's going to come in and he is going to free us from Roman oppression and he's going to come in and he is going to cleanse the temple once and for all. And so they're waving palm branches and throwing down their jackets. Now, here's the thing. Jesus does do those things. We're going to see he will go in and he will cleanse the temple, but he's not going to cleanse the temple from Roman rule. He's going to go in and cleanse the temple from their own corruption and sin that they've filled it with. And he's not going to free them from Roman oppression or Roman rule, but he is going to conquer the bigger enemy, which will be sin. They don't want to see that. They want to see the king that's going to come in and free them up. Now, you're going to see that the the Pharisees and the scribes and the high priests, they don't like that. They don't want it. See, they're looking for a way to kill Jesus because maybe they don't believe that he is. They're going to accuse him of blasphemy. In fact, that's how they're going to ultimately get to a death sentence because they're going to have an illegal trial in the middle of the night uh, because they're afraid of the people. And they're going to find that um, he is guilty of blasphemy. And if you don't know what that word means, it means that you claim to be God. They're going to say of Jesus, he claims to be God. That's why we have to kill him. Now, blasphemy is claiming that you're God. But in Jesus's case, he is God. So when he claims to be God, he's telling the truth. He's not committing blasphemy, which is interesting. Because if someone ever says to you, well, Jesus never claimed to be God, well, they all believed that he did claim to be God. That's why they were killing him. They all knew it. Don't let anybody ever tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God. He claimed it so clearly that the high priests and the Pharisees killed him because of it. Now, even if they did believe that he was the Messiah, maybe they did see all the signs of prophecy like, oh, this guy is the Messiah. They knew that it still wasn't going to work out for them because they had a good thing going on that they didn't want to lose. Think about it like this. If Jesus was who he said he was, and if he was the Messiah, and if he came in and overturned Roman rule, which is what everybody thought, and reestablished his kingdom with him on the throne, they already know that Jesus isn't their biggest fan. And so even if that happened, they would certainly lose their position. And they wanted to hold on to their position so badly that they were willing to kill the one that they might have believed was sent by God as the Messiah. Because they were like, no, what I've got is too good. What I've got is too good. You know, I've heard that before, actually. When I have tried to talk to people about Jesus, they're like, well, I'm glad you found something that works for you. But, you know, I'm fine. I'm good. I'm good. That's what I hear. I'm good. (laughs) Really? (laughs) You're good. Okay. Good luck with that. No, because they have what they believe is a good thing going. It's too good. This is too good. I had a good thing going, actually. The more I think about it, you know, my wife, were, my wife and I were no children. Remember? No children. Anybody remember no children? Being married with no children. Two incomes. Oh, man, we were rolling in it. We, we belonged to a country club. We played golf. We went out to dinner. Remember when you could afford to go out to dinner? <laughs> it was like, 
I thought we had a good thing going, but you know what? We were missing something. Remember the rich young ruler? He had everything. But he was like, I'm missing something. Jesus, I, I know you have something that I'm missing. And Jesus says, okay, cut all of your alliances to everything that you have that you put your identity in and follow me. And he's like, oh, can't do that. Can't do that. Took me a long time to do that. Took me a long time to look at my life and it's like, I don't have a good thing going here. I've patched it together. I propped it up. I filled it with garbage. Took me a while. I got to that place where I was like, I don't need any of that stuff. Who needs to go out to restaurants? And then I have kids. I was so blessed to have kids. So blessed. It was beyond, so beyond, really wonderful. Really, really, really wonderful. And they're great. Obedient, <laughs> lovely children. <clears throat> well, he's being followed by this huge multitude as he rides into the city on the appointed day. By the way, did I mention 173,880 days? I memorized that because it's really fun to say. And they're, they're cutting down palm branches and they're putting down their clothes. They're recognizing him as royalty as the king that was prophesied to come in and they're saying hosanna to the son of david blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord hosanna in the highest they're quoting they're singing psalm 118 they're singing this to him hosanna means save now they're like save us now messiah son of david hosanna son of david save us now messiah blessed are you who comes in the name of the lord hosanna in the highest and they thought they were getting a conquering king. And in fact, that's exactly what they were getting, but that's not what they were seeing in a, in a minute. In fact, the, here's the craziest part. Is when he comes into the city, you know, on his donkey, it was a little donkey too, it says in another gospel. It's like his feet are kind of dragging along as he's riding this donkey. And they're like, well, they're losing their minds. It's going to say that the whole city was quaking. There was so much energy. And he comes in and where does he go? To the palace. No. To the office of Pilate, the Roman ruler? No. He goes to his father's house. He goes to the temple. I'm sure they were like, they're losing their mind. They're like, Jesus, who's that in there? They're holding his donkey and they're leading him along. And all of a sudden he starts going to the temple. They're like, no, the palace, Jesus, the palace. Let me help you. Give me the reins of your donkey, Jesus, and let me direct you in the way that I think you should go. Oh, we laugh, but that's what we do, isn't it? Jesus, let me just take the reins of the donkey you're riding. Just come this way, this way. Go where I want you to go, not where you're going. In fact, he was saying, follow me to the temple. And they were like, no, come with us to the palace. It says when he had come into the city, all the city was moved. The word moved in Greek, it means quaked or it means seismic. That's where we, how we measure earthquakes. It was shaking. There was incredible energy. And they were all saying, who is this? Which is, was natural. That's what you would ask, I suppose. So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. You know, it's not like they, they were like, I don't know. He's a prophet, I guess. It doesn't say a prophet. It says the prophet or the, if you're fancy, the prophet. Now, I believe what they were making reference to is Deuteronomy 18, 15. I'll read it to you. 
It says, this is Moses speaking, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. They're saying, when asked, who is this guy? They're saying, he's the prophet that Moses was talking about, the one that he would raise up, the one that God would raise up from among us. We're supposed to hear him. Ironically, are they listening? (laughs) No. No. They're not hearing him. They know the prophecy, but they're not hearing him. Jesus goes into the temple, it says in verse 12, and uh, the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the, and the seats of those who sold doves. <clears throat> okay, so this is what's happened is that in the courtyard of the Gentiles, which is the outermost temp- courtyard of the temple within the walls, um, there's this huge marketplace and not just a marketplace, but a very corrupt marketplace going on now. Now, one of the things that, that makes Jesus so upset is when people are Um, kept out of being able to get to God. The courtyard of the Gentiles was the only place that a non-Jew could go to be able to commune with God. And that only place that they have is filled with corruption and sin. And Jesus comes in and he sees that. He's so upset that he goes in and he starts overturning the tables of the, those who sold and bought doves and lambs and the, and the money changers. And, and here's the thing. This was Passover. You were required to bring a sacrifice. The sacrifice was a lamb that had no spot and no blemish. Otherwise, was perfect. Was born without any uh, defect and did not receive in its life any defect, like a scrape or a scar or a broken leg or anything like that. So you had to raise up this lamb to be a sacrifice. It was like your, your most prized out of all your lambs was the one that God said, that's the one I want the perfect one. If you couldn't afford a lamb, if you were too poor, you could offer a dove. You see, this says specifically those who sold doves. And this really kind of says they were even taking advantage of the poorest of the poor. Now, maybe this whole thing started off as kind of a a convenience because if you live far away, it would be very difficult to get a lamb from here to there Um, and and a great distance, maybe without it being damaged in some way. And then you'd be out of luck. You'd have to buy another one once you got there. And so um, maybe it started off as a convenience, like, okay, well, you don't have to bring one. You can buy one because we've got some, you know, pre-owned, certified lambs that you can uh, buy from us right here. Also, you couldn't use money other than temple shekels to give a donation, which they were all required to do once a year, a half a shekel in the temple tax. So um, maybe it was set up as a, a way you could bring your money and you could exchange it for shekels and then you could make your donation to the temple. But what had happened over several years is that it was found that money could be made in this uh, venture. And not just money, but a lot of money. Because they, they, what, what would happen is you would bring in your sacrificial animal and it would be examined by the high priest. And if the high priest found any kind of defect that would disqualify it from <coughs> sacrifice you would have to then buy another one. And what they would say is, well, um, here you go. We've got a whole pen of them right here. You can buy it. But what they did was they marked it up 
up to 70% higher than any other land that you could get out on the street. So if you said, oh no, that's too much, and you went out into the regular marketplace and bought a lamb and brought it in to be examined, they would find a defect in it, forcing you to buy one of theirs at a much higher cost. Now, when you went to change in your money from your regular money to temple shekels, there was a huge exchange rate attached to it as well. So it wasn't even an even exchange. It was a huge exchange. It would be a change like dollars to pesos. You know, you would lose so much money on the deal, but you were required to use shekels in order to give. And so the high priest and his family, Annas and his family, were the ones that were running this entire industry and making its figured um, more than a million dollars a year in, in that time on the people who were coming in selling, the, having to buy their sacrificial lambs and doves and exchange their money. That's what Jesus walks into right here. Within the walls of what was supposed to be what he'll say, my father's house, a house of prayer, you have made it into a place of corruption, a den of thieves. And it's a very interesting phrase that he uses, den of thieves. A den of thieves literally was a place where thieves hide out. And he's saying, you've made my father's house a place where thieves, high priests and family, can hide within the walls. And so he turns over all of these tables and he cleanses the temple from the sin and the corruption that had filled it. Now, interestingly, this was not the first time he's done this. Three years earlier, at the start of his public ministry, Jesus goes in and finds this going on three years ago and goes in and he makes a whip out of cords and starts whipping people at these tables and driving them out. And he does essentially the same thing. He turns over the tables, he drives out all the corruption and returns it back to a place, a house of prayer. And what do we see? Three years later, they're back again. Back again. Three years it took for that place to be filled with corruption again after it had been completely cleansed. And I think, man, how did that happen? You think it was like he left after that one day and they all came right back in again? Or did it start off with like maybe one guy set up a booth? I was like, well, let's see if anybody kicks me out. And pretty soon, and he's thinking also, no competition, really. I'm the only booth here. Then the next week, maybe another two booths. They see that guy. No one's driven him out, so another couple. And then another couple. And they start to sneak back in. And pretty soon, they've snuck back in, so the place is filled with corruption again. I wonder if that happens to us, too. I wonder if we come to the Lord in confession and say, Lord, cleanse me of this corruption, the sin that I've discovered in my life, that I don't want to be there anymore. Please cleanse me. And it says in 1 John 1, 9, that if we do that, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How long does it take before it starts to creep back in? If you're not on guard, if you're not watching for that. How long does it take? Here it took three years for it to be filled with corruption again. How long does it take? Well, here's the thing. As soon as you recognize it, as soon as you realize that the corruption is snuck back in, what do you do? You confess it again, and he cleanses you once again, and he cleanses your temple. The really beautiful picture here is what we're going to see is once he's cleansed the temple, it says that the blind and the lame were brought to him, and they were restored. I love that picture because it's this idea of like Jesus saying, when you bring your sin to me, when you bring your corruption to me, I will cleanse you from it and you will be 
restored. But you cannot be restored until you've done that. The blind and the lame weren't coming in during the marketplace time when it was full of corruption. They weren't being brought in. Jesus cleansed the temple, and then they came. They weren't allowed in there, by the way. As if they were blind and lame, it was looked upon, they were looked upon as being cursed by God, and they weren't even welcome into the temple of the Gentiles. So when they came in, it's going to say that the high priests were indignant by seeing these uh, lame and blind people come in, as well as seeing the praise of the children. Look at Jesus. He says to them, it is written, my house. My house. Interesting, right? He makes a very emphatic statement. My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things, one, I'm, sure that, I'm sure they would be reading this and be like, wait a minute. I don't think those things were wonderful. That means that they marveled at the amazing things. They marveled at the fact that he was healing the blind and the lame. They marveled at it, and, but that did not turn them around to say, you know what, we, maybe we're wrong about this Jesus. He's really got something. No, they were indignant. It says that they resented it. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna, the son of David, they were indignant. They resented it. And they said, do you hear what these are saying? They go to Jesus and say, don't you hear what these little children are saying? You know what Jesus says? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes, I hear them. Have you not read? Oh, that really burns those guys, doesn't it? What do you mean, have we not read? We're the high priests. We're the scribes. We have it memorized. Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. You see the little children are coming to them and they're shouting out, Hosanna, son of David. They're repeating what they had heard, but they're coming with, this says perfected praise. In Greek, it means unfiltered, pure praise. The little children are coming to Jesus and they're saying, Hosanna, son of David, with pure, unfiltered praise, unconcerned about what the high priests are going to say or think or react. They simply come with praise of Jesus Christ. I sure do like that. I wish I did that better. I wish that I would always come to him with unfiltered, pure praise. But you know what? There are times that I find in my life when I feel like I want to say something, but I hold back because I'm afraid of what that person's going to think. Oh, you're one of those. You're one of those guys. You're a Bible thumper, I guess. I remember when I was in college and somebody, I was talking about Jesus to somebody and they said, you're not one of those born agains, are you? And I was like, no. <laughs> you know, that, that's like etched in my memory. I remember exactly where I was. I think the Lord was like, all right, I'm going to timestamp that in your memory so I can bring it up a couple more times throughout your life and remind you how you um, did not have unfiltered praise of me in that moment. You were like, no. By the way, being a born again, yes, that's what Jesus says. Nicodemus comes to him in the middle of the night and he says, unless you're born again. And Nicodemus is like, you mean I have to go back into my mother's womb? Ew. No, he says, no, not physically, fool. He's talking about a spiritual rebirth. But being born again isn't like a 70s term. It's sometimes like, you know, oh, that was from the 70s. Yeah, no, it was from like, you know, just before 70. 
Sorry, I got off track. All right, let's see. The children come with unfiltered and pure praise. I hope we do that. You know, actually, I heard a story this morning, like right after the first service. There was a, a, a new young family sitting over here, and uh, they came to me and they said, hey, we're here because um, we were out at this restaurant the other day, and we heard two ladies that go to this church just yammering on about Jesus. All right, I, I added the yammering part. They were talking loudly unfiltered about Jesus. And this guy heard and was like, where do you guys go to church? And they told him, and they were here this morning. Those two ladies didn't have any idea what they were doing, except for they were unfiltered in their conversation about Jesus Christ. And it affected the lives of another family who were here today and got to hear this amazing message. <laughs> Let's live there. Let's live in that place. Come on. Let's go out of this place today with unfiltered, pure praise of Jesus Christ. And let's, let's not be worried about, you know, what someone's going to say or think or even do. These guys, they wanted to, uh, it, actually, it, it worked out good the other way because ultimately it says that these high priests, they wanted to take Jesus. You know, we're going to get there later, not today. Um, but we're going to get there where he basically tells them two parables that are directed exactly at them. And it says that they get it. At the end, they're like, oh, they figured out that he was talking about them. And it said they wanted to take him. But guess what? They didn't. Why? They were afraid of the people. They were afraid of what the people would think. and be like, ha I'm going to be unfiltered and pure in my praise of the Lord and not worry about what other people think or say or do. Let them worry about that. I'm not going to worry about that. So then Jesus, he leaves them and he goes out to the city of Bethany and he lodged there. A lot of people were doing this actually. The city of Jerusalem was so full that many of them would go out into Bethany and Bethpage and Nob and stay there with friends or relatives or whatever. In fact, we know that Jesus has friends in Bethany, right? Do you know who they are? Martha, Mary, Lazarus, who he had raised from the dead. Maybe that's why he raised Lazarus from the dead. He's like, I'm going to need a place to stay later. <laughs> Lazarus, come on. But what I do see here in, in verse 18, it says, now in the morning he returned to the city and he was hungry. So he gets up early in the morning to go back in Jerusalem and he's got his disciples with him and he's hungry, which strikes me as funny because he's staying with Martha, who is like the servant, right? Remember that story when he went to see them and like Mary was sitting at his feet and Martha was running around feeding everybody and she complains and she says, Jesus, you know, I'm doing all the work, and Mary's just sitting there at your feet. And he says, Martha, Mary has the greater thing. And she must have got that message because she did not get up and make them breakfast this morning because they were hungry when they left. And so she heard and she learned. So on their way, they see a fig tree by the road, and he comes to it, and he found nothing on it but leaves. And so is said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. And immediately the fig tree withered away. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> okay, whoa, Jesus. He's just like, stupid fig tree. <laughs> you know, a lot of people look at this passage and they're just like, aha, this is proof that the Bible is wrong because figs don't bloom uh, on fig trees in the spring. They bloom in late August. Ha ha. So that means the whole Bible is false. Guess what? In this region, at this time, fig trees produce figs two times. One time is Late spring, 
and one time is late August. And in fact, the figs that bloom or grow to ripeness in the spring are oftentimes bigger and better in the spring than the ones that they could get in late August, which is interesting to me. So I was doing a little bit of reading on Mr. Fig Tree or whatever this website, this guy that knows all about fig trees, and he confirmed that they do have a spring harvest and that those figs actually grow on the previous year's growth on the fig tree rather than the new growth that produces new figs. And I thought, well, that's very interesting because the bigger, more ripe figs grow on the growth that was done previously on that tree. And I thought, isn't that just how it is with us? Isn't the best fruit that we produce from the things that we were taught before or learned before? The work that Jesus does in our lives then produces fruit that's even better than the stuff that we're learning right this second. I love that. I love that Jesus goes and he supposedly is looking for fruit on a fig tree. This is my fig tree. Fig tree. He's looking and it's covered with leaves. No figs. And so he curses the fig tree. The main issue, I mean, as he's walking up to that fig tree, he's God. You think he didn't know there weren't figs on it? You think he could have just said, figs, and they would have bloomed up. He could have done all those things. So there was something else going on here, right? (coughs) Something else that he was trying to teach his disciples who were with him. So the main issue that he had with the fig tree was that it wasn't what it appeared to be. It appeared to be a tree that should have figs. But on closer inspection, there were leaves, but no figs. In fact, it was a hypocrite tree, right? It appeared to be something that it wasn't. Appeared to be a fig tree. It had no figs. That was his main issue. The fig tree is, throughout the Bible, a picture or representation of the nation of Israel. Jesus is about to go into Jerusalem where all of Israel is gathered, right? Where he's going to have run-ins with the religious leaders of the nation of Israel who are going to have an appearance of holiness, But underneath that appearance, they're not going to be producing any fruit. And he's giving this foreshadowing through this illustration of the fig tree to his disciples before they go in saying, there is the appearance of holiness, but there is no fruit produced. The, The leaves, in fact, were hiding the fact that behind them was nothing of substance or value. In fact, A fig tree, if it doesn't grow figs, is, you could say, disobedient. What's a fig tree's purpose? To grow figs. My parents had two disobedient apple trees. They looked like apple trees, but they did not produce apples. And so what did we do? We cut them down after a really long, disappointing life of no apples. This is what's interesting, right? So go all the way back to the beginning. Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. Everything is great. There's no sin. There's no clothing either. Apparently, they're all just completely naked, and they don't care or know. Everything's fine. But as soon as they are disobedient to what God said to do or not do, and sin entered the world, they covered up their sin with what? Fig leaves. leaves. You get it? Fig leaves were used to cover up the sin and the corruption that was underneath. And Jesus says, 
this tree, it represents a nation that has the appearance of holiness, but is actually corrupt and disobedient underneath and no fruit. So he curses the fig tree and it withers away. And it says, when the disciples saw it, they marveled saying, how did this fig tree wither away so soon? And so Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Let's just spend a couple of minutes on this passage. First of all, I want to point out to you one thing. Who is Jesus speaking to specifically in this verse? Yes, not the multitudes, the disciples, the men who have left everything behind to follow Jesus. The ones that said, we have put our lives in your hand, Jesus, and we are following after you. That's who he's speaking to. And then he says to them, if you have faith, <clears throat> remember when he talks about faith, he's not just saying faith. He's not just faith in faith, but faith in God or me, he says. If you have faith... And do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, what was done to the fig tree? He made it wither, right? So is that what Jesus is saying? If you have faith, you can just make trees wither whenever you come, just like wither, 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 wither. Is you think that's what Jesus is saying? No. What he's actually saying to them is what he was able to discern by looking at the fig tree. He looked at a fig tree and was able to discern this tree is a hypocrite. It has the appearance of holiness, but no fruit. And he's saying, if you put your faith in me, you also will be able to discern those who claim to have holiness, but ultimately have corruption on the inside or no fruit. And many of you I know have experienced this. It goes like this. Um, when my wife and I were first saved, and this was years ago, and we would be on vacation driving in the car someplace, and we're, we're listening to the radio, and we're tuning the stations to try and find something to listen to. And kids, this is how you used to do it in your car. They had a knob, and you would turn it, and that's how it would, the thing would go down the dial. And we would come across someone speaking, and immediately like, oh, there's, it's, somebody's talking about religious stuff. Let's listen, because we were like really hungry. And uh, so we'd be listening along, and pretty soon we'd start to get that sense of like, there's something off here. I don't know what it is exactly. I can't put my finger. He hasn't said anything crazy, but there's something off here. And then ultimately, he, and we would hear something like, and if you want all of your sins forgiven, simply send in a check for $1,000. And I was like, there it is. But we were given that supernatural discernment because now we had placed our faith in Jesus Christ. We could then discern this like falseness um, that was leaves without fruit. And that's what he's saying. And it's going to be important for them because pretty soon he's going to send them out to be able to share the gospel. And remember, he says, you know what? You're going to have to know whose house to go into and whose house not to go into. And then he says, and no doubt you, and not only that, but if you say to a mountain, be removed and be cast in the sea, it will be done. You understand, look in your Bible where it says, be removed and cast in the sea. It's in quotation marks. That was a saying, gang. He wasn't specifically saying, if you have enough faith, you can move a mountain literally. What he's saying to him is, if you put your faith in me and don't doubt, then the things that seem impossible to you will not be impossible with God. 
Many of you know, have had situations in your life where you think this is an impossible situation. I don't know where to go with this. I have no more, no more um, avenues on which I can take. It seems impossible. And then you start to pray. And all of a sudden, a door opens or something happens. Or you're like, we're gonna, we're, I, I don't know how we're going to deal with this cancer at stage four. And the next thing you know, it's gone. You're like, well, that's impossible. And the doctor's like, well, you know, these things happen. <laughs> no, they don't. <laughs> you have a financial need, and you're like, I'm, how am I ever going to do this? How am I ever going to supply the money that's needed for this financial need? And then you start to pray, and God steps in. And someone sends you a check, and it's the exact amount of money that you needed, or even more. When you put your faith in God, impossible things become impossible. But he follows that up. And this is so important with this last part. He says, whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive, it makes it sound like he's saying to every single person who has faith in God, whatever I ask for, if I do it saying, I believe this will be true. I'm saying it. I believe it, that it will happen. But that's not what this verse says. In Greek, it says this, you will receive, in Greek is, you will be able to accept whatever is offered. Do you see the difference? What this says is, if you believe in your prayer, then whatever answer you get to that prayer from God, you will be able to accept because you believe. What do you believe? That he is good and holy and true and righteous and that he loves you and wants good you can accept that so that when you pray for something and God says, I hear your prayer, but I'm not going to heal that person of cancer. You can accept it knowing that he knows better than you know. That when you pray for a financial need and he says, not this way or not now, you can accept what's offered from him because you have faith. That doesn't mean that anything I say, anything I pray to him and say, and I believe it to be true and I'm claiming it, it doesn't mean that. He says impossible things are possible with God, but if you have faith, you will be able to accept whatever answer is given to you by the one who knows all things, holds all things together by his will, and who ultimately loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. That's faith, gang. That's faith to say, I accept whatever answer God gives me. And that's what he's telling them. And that's what he's telling us. We're going to stop there for today because the rest of it is too good and I'm already over time. And I can smell soup from here. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for your word today and for the, the blessing of it. Lord, I pray that we would leave this place today changed from the way we came in. Lord, maybe we're seeing our own lives a little bit differently. Lord, maybe we're encouraged to share you, your gospel. Lord, to speak at least unfiltered un, uh, and pure, um, unaware of the lives that might be being affected and changed even in our private conversations. Lord, I pray that you would help us to hold on to this idea of faith means accepting your answer, even if it's not one that we wanted to hear, Lord, but knowing that you are true and righteous and loving and compassionate and kind. 
Lord, it's hard. I know it's hard. But I pray that you would help us to receive it today, Lord. Lord, I thank you so much. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.